Picture a lighthouse. Far away on some distant rock in the middle of the ocean, its lamp slowly spinning, casting out bright beams across the waves. But from far away, all you can see is a tiny dot of light, a steady pulse as the beam points straight towards you. The only sign that something is out there in the dark. More than half a century ago, Jocelyn Bell Burnell saw her own lighthouse, a tiny blip beating in time. Only back then, in 1967, she saw that blip on a piece of paper. It was a printout on a chart showing radio waves detected by a telescope she had built with her own two hands. The waves were just a series of squiggles on rolls of chart paper. Charts that, measured end to end, would stretch for more than three miles. Jocelyn Bell Burnell analysed every inch of that paper and she found the impossible. Just like that flicker of light across the ocean, she saw a blip in the radio wave, a tiny pulse that showed that something was out there. Jocelyn Bell Burnell's discovery would shape the course of science in the 20th century. It would pave the way for future discoveries that reveal more about our universe than we ever thought possible. Her discovery would also lead to a Nobel Prize, but not for Jocelyn. I'm Claire Riley, and this is Making Space. Science is often a lonely pursuit. Long hours in the lab and years of research in one highly specialised field. For centuries, science was an especially lonely space for women. Women who were standing alone in a field historically dominated by privileged white men. For Jocelyn Bell Burnell, this was the reality of studying physics in the 1960s. Outside the walls of universities, the women's liberation movement was gaining momentum. But, as Jocelyn tells me, academia was very much still a boys' club. Physics was very, very male-dominated at that time in the UK. Uh, so women doing science of any sort were a bit unusual. And you felt you were rather being watched and scrutinised. That if you made a mess of things, they'd say, trust a woman, and all women would be damned. <laughs> Jocelyn Bell Burnell was used to being a minority in her field. She'd long had an interest in science, but in high school, she was just one of three girls in her science class. Her parents even had to lobby the teacher to let her in. The girls at my high school were expected to do cookery and needlework, and the boys did science, because everybody knew, that's in quotes, everybody knew that girls were only going to get married, uh, weren't going to be part of the economic workforce, and it was boys that needed the science education. The girls needed to learn how to make beds and things like that, which clearly took about five years. By the time she reached university in Glasgow, Scotland, things hadn't really changed. She was still the only woman in a class of 50, and she had to put up with some pretty obnoxious behaviour from her classmates. It was, it was a bit tough. It was a bit isolating. It was the, quote, tradition at that time in that university that when a female entered the lecture hall, all the guys whistled, stamped, banged their desks, catcalled, generally made as much noise as they could. And it was one thing walking into a lecture hall with a group of other women. Having to do it on your own was <laughs> a different proposition. 
And I had to learn not to blush because if you blushed, they simply made more noise. Um, you can control your blushing. Um, and I've lost the technique, but I could at that time control my blushing, which was essential. Not one of the skills you're meant to get out of a university education, but there you go. Jocelyn graduated from the University of Glasgow with honours and went on to pursue her PhD at Cambridge. But at Cambridge, she encountered a new form of isolation. You see, Jocelyn had grown up in Northern Ireland and spent her life in poorer parts of the UK's North and West. To the elites she met at Cambridge, she was basically from the boondocks. In this new world of university, instead of feeling welcome, she felt alien. That's when I began to suffer imposter syndrome. We didn't actually recognise it as such or name it then, but I can see now with hindsight that I was suffering from imposter syndrome. And I was quite sure they'd made a mistake admitting me that they were going to discover their mistake and I'd be sent home. It's a feeling so many of us have had, trying to get by in a new world where we feel completely out of our depth. But for Jocelyn, that feeling pushed her to work harder. The girl who'd had to fight for her seat in the science class in high school was determined to prove she belonged at Cambridge. At a time when scientific research was a matter of doing sums by hand and analysing data without a computer, her relentless work ethic was an asset. Jocelyn had something to prove, so she always triple-checked every detail of her work. And that meticulous eye for detail would lead her to the discovery of her career. Jocelyn Bell-Burnell was doing her PhD in quasars. It was a new field of study and there was a lot of excitement around it. Uh, there weren't many quasars known. They were the very new sexy topic. There were probably only about 20 of them known. So my particular project was to find more. And I did, I got the number up to about 200 from 20. So that gave a reasonable sized sample to work with. Now, in case you aren't an expert in quasars, let's pause here for a quick refresher in astrophysics. Imagine a supermassive black hole, millions of times the mass of our sun and billions of light years away. It's sitting in the middle of a galaxy, sucking in all the gas around it and emitting huge amounts of radiation. That is a quasar. According to NASA, quasars are the brightest objects in the universe. But even though they're massive and incredibly bright, we still need the right equipment to see them here on Earth. And that was Jocelyn's task, building a radio telescope that would allow her to detect these new celestial objects that had the scientific community so excited. Her supervisor, Anthony Hewish, designed the radio telescope called the Interplanetary Scintillation Array. And Jocelyn and a team of students built it out in the fields of Cambridge. It was the size of 57 tennis courts, and they built it by hand. So rather than being a dish-style radio telescope, it was more like a couple of thousand TV aerials all joined up together. Loads of wire, loads of cable, all kept up out of the wet grass by being on the top of wooden posts. The telescope took two years to build, with more than 120 miles of wire and cable strung out over 2,000 metal antennae and 1,000 wooden posts each hammered into the ground, one by one. 
By the end of the project, Jocelyn says she could swing a 20-pound sledgehammer, and she'd become a lot better at hitting the ball in field hockey. There's a photo of Jocelyn taken around this time, and it feels like the perfect summary of student grunt work. She's sitting in the grey English countryside next to a tent about the size of a phone booth, doing her field work in a literal field. Her raincoat is pulled tight around her face, and she's surrounded by cables and instruments, all in the hope of finding an elusive quasar. It's amazing to know that this entire telescope was put together by hand. But as soon as it was turned on, the telescope worked. And that's when the real work started. The array brought in huge amounts of data from hundreds of light years away, but it didn't have a computer screen or a visual display. At that time, Cambridge University only had one computer, and it was far less powerful than a modern laptop. So all of the data coming in from the telescope had to be analysed by hand. And Jocelyn's supervisor did what many university supervisors have done before and since. He got the grad student to do it. For Jocelyn, that meant reading miles and miles of chart paper, quite literally. We had rolls, long, long rolls of graph paper, chart paper, uh, and in a pen recorder with pens with red ink. And the radio signal picked up by the radio telescope came out on these rolls of paper as a, a wiggly red line. It was my job to operate the telescope, set the observing program, and analyse the data. In other words, look at wiggly red lines on those charts. There was a lot of it. I had miles, literally miles, of that chart of paper by the end of the six months observing that I did. She became very good at identifying little blips that represented the radio signal she was looking for, like tremors on a seismograph. But in a field in the middle of Cambridge, there were plenty of things that could get in the way of a signal coming from hundreds of light years away. A car driving nearby, a spark from a thermostat. This kind of interference, it could come from anywhere. Another problem with radio telescopes, particularly big sensitive ones like that, is that they can pick up radio interference. Okay, I have to jump in here. I spoke to Jocelyn Bell Burnell over a Zoom call. She was back in England. I was sitting in my closet in San Francisco trying to muffle the construction noises outside. At times, our internet connection got pretty patchy. So it was kind of funny to sit there thinking about her cursing radio interference while I was cursing interference of my own. Same problems all these years later. Okay, back to Jocelyn. If a car came too close to the radio telescope, I could see it, so to speak, on my chart recording because it caused interference. And things like arc welders and anything that sparked, sparking thermostats and so on, caused interference. So there was quite a bit of interference and I got used to identifying that as well and saying, oh dear, interference, that few inches of chart paper is no good because of the interference. But interference wasn't the only thing she found. If you told me one of the greatest scientific discoveries of the 20th century would come from a woman sitting in her raincoat in a field just outside Cambridge, well, it's not exactly the Hollywood image of scientists that many of us have. But science is about grunt work. It's about hours and hours of experiments that 
don't work. It's about doing the sums again and again, and it's about being meticulous. For Jocelyn Bell Burnell, proving she had an eye for detail was just part of being a female student at Cambridge. So she worked late into the night, studying every single inch of the miles of chart paper that her telescope spat out. This inch of paper right here? That red squiggle was a quasar. That squiggle over there? Well, that was just interference from a car down the road. She was meticulous. And that is what helped her spot it. A squiggle of red ink covering less than a quarter of an inch of her turquoise chart paper wasn't quite the same as her other readings, and she couldn't work out what it was. But it reappeared. And after hours and hours of analysing charts, her brain began to recognise a pattern. You've seen something like this curious squiggle before, haven't you? You've seen it from this bit of the sky, haven't you? And that second part is the really important part. Because once you know which bit of sky you're interested in, you can go back to the paper charts that cover that bit of the sky. And that's what I did. And I found that funny squiggle often was not there. But when it was there, it was from the identically same bit of the sky. So I showed a specimen of this squiggle to my thesis advisor. She scoured her miles of chart paper, looking for that same funny squiggle, as she calls it. She didn't find many, but when she did, the radio signal was always coming from the same part of the sky. Right ascension, 1921, declination, plus 21-23. But that was too much of a mouthful, so the signal earned a funny nickname, LGM, Little Green Men. She took the paper to her supervisor, but he wanted an enlargement. It's pretty hard to prove the existence of something that appears on just a quarter of an inch of chart paper. They needed to spread that squiggle out so they could see it in more detail. That was easy enough. They just needed to feed the chart paper through the machine at a faster speed. So Jocelyn's new job was to go to the observatory every time the telescope took a reading from that part of the sky, switch the chart paper to run through at a higher speed and hope that they'd get a better reading. For days and weeks, that squiggle didn't repeat. It was just absolutely normal stuff. And then finally, after a month of trying, I caught it. And it turned out to be a series of pulses about one and a third seconds apart. Whatever it was, was going lip, 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 and so on. There was still a chance it could be interference, but there was one catch. See, every night the stars in our sky appear four minutes earlier than the night before. That's because the Earth doesn't rotate every 24 hours exactly. It actually does a full rotation every 23 hours and 56 minutes. Humans work to a 24-hour clock, but the sky keeps a different time. And it is exact. What are the chances of the telescope picking up the same interference in the same part of the sky every 23 hours and 56 minutes. This thing was getting four minutes earlier each day. And human beings don't keep to that timetable. You know, if it was Joe Doe driving down the road from work in a badly suppressed car, he's getting off work 
four minutes earlier each day, 28 minutes a week. And this has been going on for several months and nobody has commented on Joe Doak's working hours. It doesn't hold up. Jocelyn and her supervisor, Anthony Hewish, checked the readings again. They found the same signal on a different telescope. A colleague ran the numbers and estimated it was coming from 200 light years away, way beyond our solar system, but still within our galaxy. So probably one of about 100,000 million celestial objects. But whatever it was, they only had one example of it. We just got to the point where we were running out of ideas about what to test on this first one and worrying about how on earth we could publish the results because if you've only got one, nobody will believe you. They think you've done something stupid. And later that night, I found the second one. And that was really good, really, really good. Jocelyn Bell Burnell hadn't found interference or an anomaly. She had discovered pulsars. Imagine a massive star, bigger than our sun. When it starts to run out of fuel, it collapses in on itself. It gets super dense. Imagine all the mass of our sun squeezed into an area the size of a city. And as it starts collapsing, it begins rotating faster and faster, spinning about as fast as the blades in a blender. As it spins, it shoots out bright jets of particles from its poles. And when those poles spin, so they're pointed towards Earth, we see a flash of light. And that's how we get the lighthouse effect. The remnants of a dying star rotating around and around, sending beams of light in our direction. From where we are, they look like they're pulsing, sending flashes of light at perfectly timed intervals. This was the pulse that Jocelyn Bell Burnell saw on her chart. The discovery was monumental, and it changed the course of astrophysics. Jocelyn discovered a second and a third pulsar, but despite making one of the biggest scientific breakthroughs of the 20th century, she still had to contend with a world that diminished her achievements. I had got engaged to be married and I was very proud of my engagement ring and I wore it to the department, which was a very bad idea, <laughs> as I now see, because it signaled that I was quitting. It was considered shameful if a married woman had to work. And I did notice that a number of friends were very happy to congratulate me on my engagement, but said absolutely nothing about making a major astrophysical discovery. But she soon learned it wasn't just her friends who overlooked the significance of her achievement. In February 1968, the scientific journal Nature published the paper announcing the discovery, observation of a rapidly pulsating radio source. But Jocelyn Bell Burnell's name was printed second, not first after her supervisor. In 1974, six years after the paper was published in Nature, Jocelyn's supervisor, Anthony Hewish, and the head of radio astronomy at Cambridge, Martin Ryle, were awarded the Nobel Prize in Physics. Jocelyn Bell Burnell, the woman who had spent two years helping to build the radio telescope, the woman who had worked endless hours scouring through miles of chart paper, the woman who had discovered the very first evidence of pulsars, 
was overlooked. She was passed over for the Nobel Prize. Well, it was Tony that got the, who conceived the project, who got the funding to build the radio telescope. Uh, but I would argue that it was my thoroughness that turned up the pulsars. I think many people would not have bothered about a curiosity at a level of 10 parts in a million. They'd get on with the other, whatever it is, 9,999, 990 things. It's one of the most controversial decisions in Nobel Prize history. Out of more than 900 laureates, the Nobel Prize organisation has only ever awarded 52 women. When Jocelyn Bell Burnell was passed over, the joke was that the award was really the Nobel Prize. But to the larger scientific community, Jocelyn will always be the one who made the discovery. She is seen as one of the leading figures who reshaped astronomy in the 20th century. And she's even picked up a pretty cool nickname. She is the one who's known as the mother of pulsars. And she is inspiring a generation of researchers. That's Shivani Bhandari. Shivani is a postdoctoral researcher and one of the leading radio astronomers continuing Jocelyn Bell Burnell's work. She's based with CSIRO in Australia and works in the burgeoning field of fast radio bursts. Like pulsars, fast radio bursts, or FRBs, give off huge bursts of radiation that can be detected by radio telescopes here on Earth. But instead of coming in a steady pulse, like a pulsar, the burst comes in a split second, and then it disappears completely. In 2019, Shivani was part of a team that pinpointed the location of a fast radio burst in a host galaxy four billion light years away. Speaking to me from her home in Sydney, Shivani credits Jocelyn Bell Burnell's discovery in the 1960s with opening the door to a whole new generation of science. With the discovery of pulsars, she basically revealed a whole new tool for solving many mysteries of the universe, and that's awesome. And these super-dense neutron stars are the most extraordinary physics laboratory in the universe. And we are learning so much about the universe just looking and studying these stars. For example, pulsar astronomers are learning about nuclear physics. They are learning about the extreme states of matter. They are testing the most fundamental physics theories such as general relativity. For Shivani and other female scientists like her, Jocelyn Bell Burnell's work doesn't just represent a new era for science. She paved the way for a new generation of women it's really inspiring to have a woman who has given birth to a whole new field of astronomy, a field which is especially male-dominated. She was here in Australia, I think, two years back, and she was so excited to hear about Fast Radio Burst and my contribution in that. And I, I have to say, like, she's one of the most humble person I've ever met. And it didn't feel like that I was talking to her, like, for the first time. It felt like talking to a mentor. That mentorship and the support for the next generation is something that Jocelyn Bell Burnell continues to this day. In the years since her groundbreaking discovery, she's received numerous awards for her work. In 2018, she won the Special Breakthrough Prize in Fundamental Physics. And what did she do with the $3 million in prize money? She donated it to the Institute of Physics to help fund students from underrepresented backgrounds and bring more women, minorities and refugees into the field. Here at NASA Ames Center, we're awarding a special breakthrough prize 
to a woman scientifically proven to be the real deal, Jocelyn Bell Burnell. Today, Jocelyn works to ensure that science is an inclusive space where anyone can work and, importantly, have their work recognised. In the UK, she helped establish the Athena Swan Charter, an academic network for women in science. The program is now in Ireland, Canada and Australia, and it's coming to the US as an initiative known as Sea Change. Jocelyn says the movement is all about challenging colleges and universities to look at their student body and ask, why? Why don't we have more women, more black students, more people of colour? What are we doing to build representation? If you speak to her today, this is the work that Jocelyn Bell Burnell is proud of. She doesn't define her life by the prize that got away. Actually, I've done very well out of not getting the Nobel Prize. I went to Stockholm one year as Joe Taylor's guest when he got the Nobel Prize, and it really is an amazing week in Stockholm for Nobel Prize week. But then it's over. Uh, whereas if you have a continuing string of awards like I've had, you actually have much more fun and it's much more sustained. So I've done very well, actually. And she's right. Jocelyn Bell Burnell will always be considered the mother of pulsars. Regardless of the awards she's received, she made a discovery that redefined astronomy, and her name is on both the scientific papers announcing that achievement. And now she continues to use her voice to lift up others, guiding the way for the next generation of scientists who've come behind her. Sometimes all it takes is one light to show the way. Making Space was produced by Claire Riley and Sophia Fox Sowell. This episode was written and recorded by Claire Riley in San Francisco, California. The show was sound designed and mixed with additional audio production by Stephen Beecham in South Lake Tahoe, California. Additional audio courtesy of the BreakthroughPrize.org and the International Center for Radio Astronomy Research. Making Space is a production of CNET.com. Thank you.